Peace be upon you. So in Surah 6 verse 38, it says, All the creatures on earth and all the birds that fly with wings are communities like you. We did not leave anything out of this book. To their Lord, all these creatures will be summoned. And God in the Quran references many animals, many creatures, different ones, elephant, zebra, lion, fly, mosquito, the list goes on and on. And in each one of these, there's something for us to learn from. And I wanted to look at how these animals reflect community and some of the ways that we can benefit as far as understanding what is it that makes a good community versus a bad community. And there's an underlying theme. Two of the animals that God mentions in the Quran that he's entitled uh, entire surahs uh, after fall in the category of a eusocial animal. And these are groups of animals that show a high advanced level of social organization. And that's a, of the, uh, the bee in Surah 16 and the ant in Surah 27. In Surah 27, we read about how Solomon could communicate with these ants. In 27.18, it reads, When they approached the valley of the ants, one ant said, O you ants, go into your homes, lest you get crushed by Solomon and his soldiers without perceiving. Now, the thought of an ant communicating and a human being being able to understand their communication must sound absurd. But what's fascinating is science is showing us that ants do communicate. They communicate via pheromones. And one of the things that they communicate is the fact that they can identify uh, other colonies, other individuals. They can identify um, uh, warnings or where food is. And they communicate this to mass to the rest of the colony. And to read this in the Quran and to realize that science backs this up just makes it that much more uh, appreciative. Also in uh, 2719, it continues. It says, he, Solomon, smiled and laughed at her statement. The fact that it's referencing the ant as a female is actually scientifically proven because ants, they dictate the sex uh, upon uh, when they're uh, larva. And the entire colony, for the most part, is female. The only time you have a male is for the sake of the procreation of the queen, but then its life is short-lived. So the entire colony, for the most part, is female. And again, the fact that the Quran 1400 years ago is identifying the ant as female is pretty profound. Now, what else is fascinating is the fact that an ant colony, the way it operates, so people have been studying ant colonies, and they see that each generation takes on a different persona in the sense where the early generation, the first generation of an ant colony is very aggressive, it's very assertive, it's quick to go to war, it's quick to go to battle, it's quick to claim its terrain. And as the colonies mature, they know when to pick a battle and when to not, when to go to war and when to uh, uh, retreat. And they're less aggressive than the uh, new colonies. And this shows that the colonies are operating more as akin to an entire organism than as an individual entity, right? You don't look at an ant as an individual. You look at an ant in a colony. And another category of eusocial creatures that's not directly mentioned in the Quran, but it could be argued that it's referenced, is that of the termite. Now, what's fascinating is in uh, South Africa, you can go and see these termite mounds. They're 10, 15 feet tall, and they're uh, architectural marvels in the sense where the climate inside the mound is perfectly calibrated, the humidity is calibrated, everything is perfectly done. Now, one of the things that's fascinating is that you can go and trace the uh, shadow of one of these gigantic termite mounds and then go break off a big chunk of that mound Come back a few days later and you'll see that the termites have replicated that mound to exactly the shape it was before. Now, 
in if you look at this from a surface level, it seems fascinating. How did they know to build that structure? How did they know to reframe it in that exact uh, uh, way? Do they have a blueprint that they're following? But if you think about that termite in the sense of a single organism, the entire colony is a single organism, it becomes more understandable. And you take a human body. Human body has trillions of cells. Now, if I cut, uh, you know, make a cut into the body, the cells know how to repair that body back to its original state. Now, we became kind of uh, complacent to this process, but each cell is operating in conjunction with every other cell to form the entire organism. You know, we don't look at a human being as a collection of trillions of cells. We look at it as one entity. Just like when you look at an ant, you shouldn't look at it as, as one single ant, but you look at it as an entire colony. And there's something to be learned here. The word that's used in 2719 says, when Solomon responds, says, my Lord, direct me to be appreciative of the blessings you have bestowed upon me and my parents, and to do the righteous works that please you. Admit me by your mercy into the company of your righteous servants. Now, in English, it's just, it's clever, but the word servants has the word ants in it. When we serve God, when we do our utmost to fulfill our purpose in this world that God has allocated to us, we're being servants and we're doing a similar process to what an ant does in a colony. You see, these eusocial creatures, what makes them so fascinating is that they're doing what's best for the society. They're doing what's best for their uh, peers. And they're not doing it out of force. You know, the queen isn't dictating terms to them and telling them, you do this and you do that and you forge and you guard and, you know, such and such. They're each independently doing it. They're doing what's best allocated for them based on their skill set, based on their age, whatever. Uh, and they're doing it to their utmost. They're not being lazy. They're being uh, productive. Uh, what's even fascinating is they realize like ants have a way of uh, um, self-regulating uh, traffic jams because some of their openings to their uh, homes are narrow. And if all of them try to uh, exit or go gather uh, or forage at once, it's going to create bottlenecks and it's actually going to be less productive. So instinctively, they know how many people should go out and forage and the best foragers are the ones who go and hunt. And the rest of them will stay behind. Again, not out of laziness because they realize this is what's best for the colony. Another gr group of uh, animals that's mentioned in the Quran that uh, Surah 16 is entitled over is the bee. And the bees, again, they operate as if they're a single organism. They communicate with one another. When one of them identifies, like, say, where uh, there's lush orchards, uh, they will <laughs> dance and wiggle with more, uh, uh, more aggressively in the sense of communicating to the rest of the bees that this is the direction they need to go. This is where they're going to find the best food supplies, similar to how the ants, they leave pheromones. Now, one of the uh, predators to the bees is the wasp. You know, wasps can, for the most part, the wasp larvae are uh, uh, carnivorous, and they use the bees and their larvae actually for food uh, for their young. Uh, so one wasp can take on about 30 bees, and you can watch these videos on YouTube where the wasp, it's like an action movie. They're infiltrating the beehive, and they're just knocking the bees down one by one. But the bees' defense mechanism is super clever. One, they try to sting it, but typically that's ineffective. A more effective approach is they wait for the wasp to, to, to sit and rest for a moment. And then they will huddle around the wasp and simultaneously vibrate at a, the same frequency, increasing the temperature inside that huddle to the point it cooks the wasp alive. Now, obviously, bees give their life in this process, but they realize for the sake of the colony, for the sake of the next generation, 
This is the process that needs to take place. What blows me away by all this is the fact that these animals, they operate by choice. Again, no one is forcing the bees to do this. No one is telling the bees, hey, you go and start vibrating at this frequency and you know, risk, uh, give your life in order to uh, fulfill this need. They're doing it independently. Now, in 638, where it says these animals are communities like you, what I came to realize is that when you look at a believing community, a believing community operates by choice. They choose to be moral. They choose to uphold God's law, not because someone is forcing them, not because someone is threatening them with lashes or imprisonment or uh, chastisement or anything of that sense. These people operate by choice because they want to draw closer to God. When we came into this world, God gave us the freedom of choice. He gave us the opportunity to worship God freely if we choose to, or we can decide not to. The choice is ours. When a society tries to force its laws, its morality onto the people, this is actually the attribute of a disbelieving community. And we see it consistently. We see the example of Pharaoh. When the magicians... Um, uh, were basically working on behalf of Pharaoh to try to uh, uh, discredit Moses and Aaron. At the beginning, Pharaoh was saying, oh, you can even be close to me. And when the magicians felt prostrate and said, we believe in the God of Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh's response in 2071 says, did you believe in him without my permission? He must be your chief, the one who taught you magic. I will surely sever your hands and feet on alternate sides. I will crucify you. On the palm trunks, you will find out which of us can inflict the worst retribution and who outlasts whom. You see, the disbelievers, when they want to get conformity, when they want to get unity, the way they do that is through fear and intimidation, through threats, that they try to get everyone in line. They want to get everyone the same. Because when they do that, then they say, hey, look, we have conformity, we have unity. And what's fascinating is another verse, Pharaoh is saying that Moses and Aaron are trying to remove the Egyptians' ideal way of life. That they look around, they say, look, everyone believes the same, acts the same, thinks the same. This is great. But they don't realize the only reason people do that is because the force and intimidation by Pharaoh and his troops. We see a similar example in Schweb. When uh, Schweb went to these people and told them to basically, you know, trade equitably, to uh, treat people fairly, their response, it says in 788, says the arrogant leaders among his people said, we will evict you, O Schweb, together with those who believed with you from our town, unless you revert to our religion. He said, are you going to force us? So again, the way that the disbeliever tries to get its way, to try to get people on board to its understanding, is through force and intimidation through fear, through punishment. These are the tactics that the disbelievers use in order to try to get conformity, to try to get people to abide by the rules. And this is in stark contradiction to what you see in these eusocial uh, organisms, the termite, the ant, the bee. You know, These are communities that form because they all believe in the general purpose. They're all in it together. They do what's best for one another. And again, it's not by force, it's by choice. A lot of time right now, you're seeing in the political debate, people pushing towards socialism. And the, the irony with socialism is that when it's forced, it's actually a totalitarianism. It's people forcing you to be moral, forcing you to be righteous, forcing you to be charitable. When it's forced, it's no longer charity, right? It's theft. Um, we see another example in Cain and Abel. In uh, Cain and Abel, in 527, it says, recite for them the true history of Adam's two sons, 
They made an offering that was accepted from one of them, but not from the other. He said, I will surely kill you. He said, God accepts only from the righteous. If you extend your hand to kill me, I am not extending my hand to kill you, for I reverence God, Lord of the universe. I want you, not me, to bear my sin and your sin. Then you end up with the dwellers of hell. Such is the record for the transgressors. His ego provoked him into killing his brother. He killed him and ended up with the losers. God then sent a raven to scratch the soil to teach him how to bury his brother's corpse. He said, Woe to me, I failed to be as intelligent as this raven and bury my brother's corpse. He became ridden with remorse. So again, you see that the believer, in this case, it's not mentioned by name, but in the Bible, it's Abel. He provides an offering to God that's accepted. And Cain gets upset about this, and he threatens him and eventually kills him. But you see, Abel's not going down that path. He's not going to force him into his understanding. He's not going to threaten him back because he realizes this is a tactic of a disbeliever. And the examples go on and on. Another one's with Abraham uh, and his father in 1945. says, Oh, my father, I fear lest you incur retribution from the most gracious, then become an ally of the devil. He said, Have you forsaken my gods, O Abraham? Unless you stop, I will stone you and leave me alone. He said, Peace be upon you. I implore my Lord to forgive you. He has been most kind to me. You're seeing again, the believers are using logic, reason, love, compassion to try to sway people over to their side. But the disbeliever only knows one thing. It's fear, intimidation, punishment, force. These are the tactics it uses to try to get conformity, to try to shut out dissent. People who contradict what it is that they believe. And you see this time and time again. Today is no different. The quote-unquote Islamic states are the most uh, fear-mongering uh, entities that are out there. They're trying to get people to become righteous through force. And what's funny is their form of righteousness is complete contradiction to what's in the Quran. And this is never a uh, suitable tactic for a believer. A believer uses logic, reason, uh, debate in 6123. Uh, it says debate with them in the best possible manner, right? These are the tactics of the believer. You know, we don't try to force our opinion onto other people through force, through fear, through intimidation. We try to sway them over with logic and reason. One of the fascinating things is if you look at this understanding of the animals being representations of the human being in our communities, there are four animals that I see that are referenced in context to the disbelievers. And there's an underlying theme among these animals. The first one is in 2941. It's uh, in the context of the spider. So Surah 29 is entitled The Spider, and 41 it reads, The allegory of those who accept other masters beside God is that of the spider in her home. The flimsiest of all homes is the home of the spider if they only knew. And you think, okay, there's so much packed into this. One is, unlike other homes, <laughs> the home of the spider is meant to trap and kill whatever lands there. You know, typically a person's home is a place, it's a sanctuary, it's hospitable. You, someone comes in, you greet them, you provide them food, shelter, you know, you're uh, compassionate towards them, not a spider's home. But what else, else is interesting is that it uses the female reference to the spider. It says her home. And one of the things is you take a black widow spider. There's a reason it's called a black widow. This is one of the most deadly poisonous spiders. It's a widow is because when the male comes to procreate, it, can, it eats the, uh, the male after procreation. Now, what kind of a person would that be that would feed on the spouse <laughs> of, uh, uh, of oneself, 
right? It's someone's spouse. Like, this is just, it's vile. And it's attributing this to, this is what human beings are like, the disbelieving communities, that they bring you in with the expectation to consume you, you know, figuratively in that sense. But they want to destroy you. They want to destroy your soul, your essence, the real you. Another example of uh, disbelievers in the context of animals is in uh, Surah 47, sorry, 54, verse 7. In the context of locusts, it says, when their eyes are humiliated, they come out of the graves like scattered locusts. Now, what's so fascinating about a locust? A lot of people, they mistaken a locust with uh, cicadias. Uh, they're two separate animals. Uh, cicadias are part of crickets, and locusts are actually just grasshoppers. Now, what differentiates a locust from a grasshopper is that when a grasshopper's population density gets to be too high, where they all breed and uh, give birth at the same time, the eggs hatch at the same time, there's a physiological change that takes place that causes them to swarm. And for years, researchers were trying to understand what causes locusts to swarm, because that's when they become destructive. Just to put some context there, uh, about one-fifth of the world population is, or sorry, uh, the farmland is affected by locusts. Uh, about 10% of the world population's livelihood is affected by locusts. So it's a major problem. So researchers all over the world, in uh, uh, Africa, in the United States, in um, uh, uh, Australia, uh, they're trying to figure out what they can do in order to uh, reduce this threat. So the question was, what causes locusts to swarm? And what they found out was that when the population density gets to be too high, there is a physiological change that takes place that causes the locusts basically to transform from grasshoppers to locusts is that they become cannibalistic. Just like the spider that cannibalizes its uh, uh, mate, the locusts will cannibalize one another. So the swarming happens because they're each in search of food, but they're also fleeing from one another from being consumed by one another. Now, this is unreal. You know, it's a fact that God is saying the disbelievers, they're like locusts. And one of the attributes, it says on the day of judgment, that the disbelievers, it says mutual blaming, that they're just going to be blaming one another back and forth. But you see this mechanism also in this life, and we're going to get into that. The third and fourth animal that God references in the context of disbelievers can be seen in Surah 5, verse 60. There's other verses, but I'm just going to point to this. So to say, let me tell you who are the worst in the sight of God, those who are condemned by God after incurring his wrath until he made them as despicable as monkeys and pigs and the idol worshipers. These are far worse and farther from the right path. That God is equating the monkeys and pigs as despicable as the uh, uh, disbelievers. Now, again, these animals, monkeys, they've uh, documented that the, at some point they will turn on one of the uh, members of their group and they will consume them. They will rip them, uh, their limbs, uh, limbs apart and eat them. And same thing with pigs. Pigs are known to eat their young uh, in the sense where a uh, male pig will see its litter and will consume it. <laughs> these are the characteristics of disbelievers. That again, this is, uh, I take it to be, you know, figurative, allegorical, in the sense that this is what you see in a disbelieving community, is that they blame one another, they attack one another, they're constantly fighting with one another, and at the same time, they're fleeing from one another. And God gives us the example of uh, believers, that it says on the Day of Judgment that they'll be like butterflies. And one of the fascinating things is, 
you look at something like a monarch butterfly. So a monarch butterfly, it starts its life um, in uh, Canada. And then when winter starts rolling around, it travels over 3,000 miles to uh, Mexico uh, across the uh, United States. And what's interesting is that that, mo uh, that uh, butterfly lives for eight months. Then for three consecutive generations, the uh, butterfly only lives about four to five weeks. And as it travels from Mexico, it starts traveling back all the way to Canada until it gets to the fourth generation, which they call the Malthusia generation. And that generation, who's never been to Mexico, will live eight months and make that entire track all the way back to Mexico. Now, what's interesting is you look at these animals. Again, there's millions. I believe that they say the migrations, about 100 million monarch butterflies take place. They're not cannibalistic. They're not flying from one another. They're all in it together. And God, in 638, it talks about the birds, says the birds are communities like you. If you ever see bird murmurations where, you know, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of birds, they will fly in formation. And scientists try to understand what is causing them to know what direction to turn, how to move. Uh, and it looks mesmerizing. It looks fake. It looks like someone splashed paint along the sky and that it's moving in this uh, three-dimensional pattern. But these birds, again, they're orchestrating themselves in order to... Uh, avoid being uh, attacked by predators, but they're working in unison as if they're one single entity. And you see this again with schools of fish. And it's fascinating, you know, no one's coordinating this behavior. No one is dictating to them, okay, turn left, turn right, stop, turn around, do this. And they're all working in unison because they have a common goal. They don't want to be eaten. <laughs> and because of that common goal, it's as if they're all working together. And this is what a believing community is like is the fact that because we have this common goal to worship God alone, to dedicate our life, our death entirely to God alone, we all work together. God describes this as if they're bricks in one wall. And it's not done through force. It's not done through fear and intimidation. It's done because we all share that common goal. And once we all share that common goal, we all want each other to benefit, to be able to succeed. And it makes me think when uh, birds, they migrate, they fly in this V formation. And what they found out is that whoever is the lead bird, eventually they will rotate because whoever is the lead bird is going to take the brute of the uh, the force from the wind and they're actually cutting the drag for the adjacent birds on the uh, uh, formation. So they'll rotate who, in essence, is leading the, uh, uh, the flock. And by doing so, they all are in it together. They want all of them to make it to their uh, migration spot. And this is the way a believing community needs to operate. We need to support one another. We need to be kind to one another. We need to bring each other up. Because if we're only going to attack each other, we're only going to fight with each other, quarrel with each other, call each other's names and, you know, expose one another, we're only hurting ourselves. Um, in 31.18 says, You shall not treat uh, the people with arrogance, nor shall you roam the earth proudly. God does not like the arrogant show-offs. Walk humbly and lower your voice. The ugliest voice is the donkey's voice. In 1753, it reads, Tell my servants to treat each other in the best possible manner, for the devil will always try to drive a wedge among them. Surely the devil is man's most ardent enemy. A believing community, one of the uh, telltale signs is that there's peace. You go there feeling good. You go there feeling uh, closer to God. If you are in a community that's causing you stress, it's causing you anxiety, it's causing you, you know, you feel like uh, there's just a lot of tension there, it's probably signs that it's not a truly believing community. One of the fascinating surahs that the more I read, the more I understand that this is in the context of a community, 
is in Surah 49 entitled The Walls. Now you think, what is it about walls? The walls shows who's in and who's out, who's part of the community, who's not part of the community. And this surah starts with the um, advice, it says, it's or it's a commandment, to not yell at the prophet. Why? You think, what is it about this? It says, do not yell at the prophet as you yell at uh, one another. Um, it's because, imagine this, the, uh, the prophet, the messenger, this is supposed to be the individual chosen by God to disseminate God's information to mankind. If they go, if a newcomer comes to a community and sees that this individual is being disrespected, is being yelled at, what does it make it think the context of that society is, that community is? Does it seem like somewhere that's welcoming, that's respectful, that's kind, is compassionate? No, of course not. In 49.9, it continues, if two groups of believers fought with each other, you shall reconcile them. If one group aggresses against the other, you shall fight the aggressing group until they submit to God's command. Once they submit, you shall reconcile the two groups equitably. You shall maintain justice. God loves those who are just. Now, in any community, you're going to have quarreling. You're going to have bickering, fighting, this and that. But the aspect is we have to treat each other nicely. We have to reconcile with one another. And if one is aggressing, then we use an equitable, uh, equitable response in order to get them to stop aggressing. Because God tells us aggression is permitted only against the aggressors, and that oppression is worse than murder. In 49.10 says, The believers are members of one family. You shall keep the peace within your family and reverence God that you may attain mercy. And it continues in 49.10, sorry, 11, uh, 12, and 13. Uh, these are very powerful verses. It says, O you who believe, no people shall ridicule other people, for they may be better than they. Nor shall any women ridicule other women, for they may be better than they. Nor shall you mock one another or make fun of your names. Evil indeed is the reversion to wickedness after attaining faith. Anyone who does not repent after this, these are the transgressors. Again, imagine yourself going into a community where you see people are mocking and ridiculing one another. What impression does that leave you? What does it make you think of that community? Does that seem like somewhere that's hospitable, that's peaceful, that's kind, that's compassionate, somewhere that's going to draw you closer to God or further away? And it continues in 49.12, says, O you who believe, you shall avoid any suspicion, for even a little bit of suspicion is sinful. Now, what I find fascinating is that sometimes someone is communicating and uh, it's easy to not give them the benefit of the doubt. They say, oh, nice shoes. And you think, you're like, oh, what did he mean by nice shoes? You know, are they mocking my shoes? Are they making fun of them? God is saying, don't be suspicious in these circumstances. Give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, if someone isn't actively trying to mock you, ridicule you, that they might have said something in an off-putting way, give, maybe they're just awkward people. Maybe they're just not uh, well-spoken. Maybe they, uh, uh, it just came out wrong. Because when we're sinful, we're uh, sorry, suspicious, we're only hurting ourselves. We're adding to that tension, that animosity. And in a believing community, we need to have peace. And it continues, it says, you shall not spy on one another, nor shall you backbite one another. And this is a very powerful uh, description of what it's like. It says, this is as abominable as eating the flesh of your dead brother. You shall certainly abhor this. You shall observe God. God is a redeemer, most merciful. What I take away from this is that these disbelieving communities, that they're so quick to attack one another, to slander one another, and to backbite one another. And God in the Quran, they references these communities as if they're cannibalistic, the locust, the spider, the pig, the, uh, the monkey. You know, these are animals that given the opportunity, they will eat their own. 
And God is saying when we're suspicious, when we backbite, we're no different. To think that we're willing to uh, throw someone under the bus, we're willing to uh, uh, attack them when they're not around, or even to their face. What does that say about us? What does that say about our community? In 49.13 says, O you, O people, we created you from the same male and female and rendered you distinct peoples and tribes that you may recognize one another. The best among you in the sight of God is the most righteous. God is omniscient, cognizant. Our motivation as a community and as an individual is to maintain righteousness. We want to be around other people who are going to help us maintain righteousness. If the community we belong with, that we identify, that we do Quran studies with, we go to Joma with, if these are people who are causing us to backbite, to mock, to ridicule, we have to assess our situation. We have to ask, is this the community of the believers or the disbelievers? Because those tactics, mocking, ridiculing, suspicion, these are the things the disbelievers do. And we don't want to have any part with that. Now, in um, 1980, uh, there was uh, two researchers. They were studying a, a baboon troop in uh, Kenya. And um, one day, the uh, baboon troop, they found uh, a dump that a local resort was using to throw away all their uh, excess food. And so the baboon troop, they, they took refuge next to that dump. And they were structured in such a way that you would expect they had a hierarchy in the sense where there was alpha male, there was his comra uh, comrades, and then there was the, matri uh, the, the matriarchs and the women. And there was a bunch of these adolescent males who were kind of on the fringes. They belonged to the group, but they weren't really allowed to participate. They weren't groomed. They weren't able to eat from the same food as everyone else. And this was a very typical hierarchy. Well, one day the uh, garbage truck came and deposited a bunch of meat. And naturally, because this was a prize uh, uh, possession, all the alphas ate from the meat. And it ended up that the meat was contaminated with uh, tuberculosis. And the alphas died off. And the two researchers who were studying the, uh, the troop, they thought that their research was over. They were very uh, upset. And uh, they left and went and found another troop. A couple years went by, and they ended up back at the landfill. And they saw that the troop was still there and was thriving. And what they found out was that the culture of the troop has completely changed once the alphas, these aggressive individuals, were taken out. What they saw was that the, uh, uh, the grooming among the, uh, the baboons was a lot more. Uh, people weren't aggressive. There wasn't as much of a hierarchy. And everyone was able to participate. Now, what's fascinating is during those years, many, many new adolescent males came and joined the group. And you would think that they would try to enforce their hierarchy, but what they found out was once a uh, more aggressive, assertive male came into the troop, that if they started behaving in that way, they were shunned. People wouldn't groom them. People wouldn't share, you know, uh, communicate with them. And they quickly learned that this was not tolerated within the group. And over a span of 20 years, the culture of this troop persisted where I think there was only one adolescent male from the original group who stayed there, but the culture persisted. But sadly, humans, eventually, they killed off the, uh, the, the troop, and the troop was disbanded. But for 20 years, it sufficed. Now, what is there to learn from this is that when you're in a community and you have these individuals who are uh, A-types, alpha-types, who want to be assertive, to, they're aggressive, they want people to conform to their understanding, to uh, you know abide by their rules— what you end up having is a very uh, hierarchical organization and a very aggressive uh, organization. Now, once you're in a community where people are all equal, 
people's opinion is all accepted, uh, you see that it's fundamentally different. I used to belong to a, a group, uh, a submitter group, and they were very hierarchical. Uh, you know, people, uh, it was like shunned what you could say or couldn't say. And people always looked for certain individuals for a, a comment and understanding. And, um, it was a place that was just full of tension and it wasn't very friendly. And by God's leave, there was another, uh, uh community that wasn't like this. There was no hierarchy. Uh, people shared their ideas. And one day I was in a Quran setting. This is when I was first, uh, attending that group. And someone, you know, made a comment and they're very kind of like uh, upset about. And it was, you know, totally off the mark. It didn't really match with the Quran. And I was curious to see how this group handled this kind of situation because the previous group I was part of, uh, they would quick to, to kind of like, you know, verbally attack and shut down the uh, dissenting view. And what was fascinating is the person made their comment. People said, okay, and they moved on and they continued uh, uh, reading the verses and talking about it. And no one made a big deal. Now, if someone goes and makes a outlandish statement about their understanding on some verse or some topic, it's interesting that, you know, one of the tendencies is, oh, this idea needs to be shut down. We need to uh, put this person in their place. The other one is, look, we can't guide anyone. If God wills, they're going to be guided. If God doesn't will, they're not going to be guided. You know, if their ego is going to get the best of them, they're going to go astray. And if they're sincere, they're going to see the truth. But there's nothing we can do to change that. And what's fascinating is this individual who made the assertive comment, you know, their behavior quickly shifted once they saw that there was no pushback. Now, you take a sociopath because, you know, sadly, in any society, there's a, you know, 1%, 2% of people who are sociopaths. They're, they're only in it for themselves. They like hierarchy. They like tension. They like confrontation. And you take this individual and they go to one group and they realize that that behavior isn't tolerated. You know, if you go in and try to be uh, extra assertive and uh, forceful and try to shove your opinion down the throats of everyone else, they realize that, you know, that's not a society that is going to be uh, uh, beneficial for them. But then they go to another group and they see that in this group that fighting, um, forcing your opinion, being confrontational is looked at as a positive. Now, this sociopath, he says, wow, this is a group where they can thrive. This is a group where they can uh, have control, they can have uh, leadership and be able to win people over because it operates on a similar mechanism where it's force intimidation, uh, shoving your idea down the throats of others. And this is what it's like when you are among disbelievers, that they want to force their opinion onto others. They want people to uh, submit to their understanding and they can't tolerate people having a difference of understanding or seeing things uh, in a different light. And by God's leave, it, the decision is up to us. Which culture do we want to institute into our communities? Do we want to have one where it's kindness, compassion, where in essence we're all striving to draw closer to God, to eliminate any form of idol worship, to uh, grow and um, uh, prosper all together? Are we in a community where we each want to independently um, uh do what we think is best at the expense of everyone else, that we're willing to throw other people under the bus, that we're willing to mock, ridicule, backbite, slander, anything in order to give our argument, our understanding, our opinion, the higher status. And um, it's one of those things that once you look at it in that light, it becomes obvious. And if you happen to be in a community that is of that nature, there's one of two choices. One choice is that you try to set the example by not giving in to slandering, backbiting, uh, being forceful. The other one is go find another group. By God's leave, God says that this world is spacious, that um, 
It's up to us that if we choose to worship God freely, that he's going to give us the opportunity. In 2956, it reads, Oh, my servants who believe, my earth is spacious, so worship me. In 497 through 100, it reads, Those whose lives are terminated by the angels while in a state of wronging their souls, the angels will ask them, What was the matter with you? They will say, We were oppressed on earth. They will say, Was God's earth not spacious enough for you to emigrate therein? For these the final abode is hell and a miserable destiny. Exempted are the weak men, women, and children who do not possess the strength nor the means to find a way out. These may be pardoned by God, God is partner, forgiver. Anyone who emigrates in the cause of God will find on earth great bounties and richness. Anyone who gives up his home, emigrating to God and his messenger, then death catches up with him. His recompense is reserved with God. God is forgiver, most merciful. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.